Good afternoon, good morning, everyone, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining EarthDay.org's uh, webinar series um, on food waste and loss. Um, we have a very exciting uh, panel today. Um, we'll start with, um, so if, if you're looking on the screen, Anne Veneman, who was the former USDA secretary, um, Dr. Sheta Chakraborty, who was a risk and behavioral scientist, um, Justin Kamine um, from KDC.Earth, Kawe Suplisi, um, who's the founder of Barnana, and I am Jillian Seaman, and I am the Director of Food and Environment for EarthDay.org. Um, we are having a little technical difficulty, but um, we will be sure to um, fix this as we um, keep it moving. Um, so today, the topic of discussion is obviously food waste and loss and responsible practices. And um, global food waste is a far reaching problem. Approximately one third of our food produced globally each year, 1.3 billion tons is lost or wasted. In the United States alone, about 40% of our food goes to waste annually. We need to find solutions that'll be sustainable, which we'll, we will be discussing today. Um, so the first question um, I will send over to Dr. Shetha, um, who is a risk and behavioral scientist. Um, and we wanted to talk about a few different things. Um, Shetha, minimizing food waste is a priority right now during the COVID-19 pandemic with the public concerned about the potential ramifications of our food supply. But even before this global pandemic, there were concerns about a rapidly growing population and our hunger crisis with the FAO issuing a global call for zero tolerance on food waste. Do you think this call can result in action? And can you discuss potential behaviors in terms of how we can minimize food waste? Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me and convening this really important panel as we kick off 2021 and think really critically about how we're going to address some of the biggest sustainability challenges that we face as a global population. Food waste is one of them. We know that in more affluent countries, people waste food at the post-consumption point in the fork to farm to fork chain. So this is once food has been bought, it's thrown away. And it's not surprising because it's only about 10% of consumer income that is, that is um, allocated to food versus in less affluent countries, it's almost 50%. So people aren't throwing away food in the way that they do in more affluent countries. That's critical to remember because if we can tackle that, um, that percentage of people who are throwing away food, in the more affluent nations, and we can come up with some behavioral inter interventions to change that ultimate decision to throw away food scraps that could still that are still nutritious and healthy and edible. Then we can make a big dent in this food waste issue. So that's where I approach this from as a behavioral scientist, and I also generally just have a visceral reaction to seeing food being thrown away. It's um, partly because of my ethnicity. I'm from Calcutta, India, and I spent summers growing up in Calcutta, which is where the majority of my family still is based. And food just isn't available in the way that it is in the United States, especially growing up. Um, but the, it, it still hasn't changed significantly compared to how we consume in some of these more affluent countries like where I am now in the US. And the, the jarring uh, 
juxtaposition between the ability to have access to food growing up in the United States versus what my family was experiencing in Calcutta really created for me a real disgust in seeing perfectly good food just getting thrown out. And so it's, it's, a, it's an issue that's close to my heart in that case. And then there's so much that can actually be um, so much in terms of intervention that's cost effective that can be put into place to see real just little tweaks and communication efforts that can ultimately result in real widespread behavioral outcomes. So there's really great robust evidence that shows that just reframing food waste, not calling it waste necessarily, but thinking about it as a being, you know, a proponent of sustainability and an advocate of improving your carbon footprint, that goes a long way. And evidence of being able to change behavior, whether we're talking about waste or changing behavior in terms of food consumption, there's a lot of there's a lot of good proof here that it works. So there's been studies that have shown that if you just reframe healthy foods sound cooler or better, kids will choose it over unhealthy foods. So something like a carrot why would a child choose a carrot over a French fry if they have the choice in their school cafeteria? Well, if you rename a carrot as like a kick butt carrot and make it easier for a child to, you know, grab and take it and put it on their lunch tray and then also make it easier for them to buy it, maybe with a preloaded prepaid card, as opposed to needing to have cash or ex exact change and making something the unhealthier food options like those French fries requiring that extra step of having cash or exact change and they're just called french fries versus the cool kick butt carrots, you will see an uptick in behavior of children choosing the carrots or the healthier options over the unhealthier options. And that's incredible, because again, it's just minor little infrastructure changes and creating friction that makes it easier for people to make better decisions. And alternatively, if you're trying to break bad habits, you can do something similarly to make it harder for people to make um, bad decisions, right? So that's a lot of cool, cool findings coming out of behavioral science generally. And this is something uh, we, we have also been looking at broadly in food waste. So there was an op-ed that I had written along with my colleague, Jack Bobo, and we were looking at how to use behavioral science to reframe food waste. So there was a example in 2012 of a blogger mom who was able to talk about the scraps of um, different animal products being then combined into what she referred to as pink slime. Some listeners may remember this. So pink slime was the filler product in chicken nuggets, for example. And it was food scraps, technically, still nutritious, but it was it was a campaign that created massive disgust around these like meat scraps that were then pink slime. Um, and it worked. This the, the products got off the off the shelves and out of the cafeterias. Another example where it was a positive reframing of food waste was Dan Barber um, of Blue Hill Farms. He also has an episode on Chef's Table. I highly recommend that people take a look at. And he created a pop-up restaurant, which was impossible to get reservations at. This was back in 2015 in New York City, where the entire menu was made up of waste that would normally be, or scraps that would normally be thrown away. But this was the luxury pop-up restaurant called Wasted. And on the menu were things like skate wing skeletons, white fish heads, cucumber butts, ugly produce, but he was able to create a popular sustainability minded frame uh, restaurant and framing and get people that wanted to rebrand food waste as a as an actual um, supporting of sustainability measures and advocating 
for better carbon footprints. So there's a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation in behavioral science in terms of communicating and in terms of coming up with interventions that are cost effective that can really result in behavioral change. So I'm really excited to share more of that as we go through. Wonderful, thank you. And Sam, thank you for joining us as well. And for those of you, um, Sam just joined us and he, um, Sam, I'm so excited about you being on this panel for so many different reasons. Um, he, Sam was the uh, executive chef at the White House under the Obama administration and also the senior policy advisor um, on nutrition. Um, on nutrition. And Sam, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were switching from the pyramid to my play, I was part of the team at USDA that um, kind of helped with that and launched it at USDA. So I'm very excited to have you here. Great to um, see you. Thank you for all your work on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, um, just for, for everyone to know, um, we had a moderator. There are technical issues. Um, seems like something somebody's computer crashed. So um, we will just continue um, with this wonderful conversation. And Justin, um, at KDC, your goal is to create and invest in profitable infrastructure that will reduce food waste in the US. Can you talk about the technology being used to reach your goals? Yeah, sure. Well, pleasure to be here. Um, and I think you start off with a stat that 40% of the food that gets grown is thrown away. Uh, equating to about 3.36 billion acres. Uh, so KDC's background is that we've built, owned, and operated infrastructure nationwide. And uh, we're really focused on how do we use that infrastructure to really solve some of society's biggest problems. And we see food waste as being one of those. Um, so we work with supermarkets. Uh, we look at that as high volume and high value food waste. Um, and we actually don't call it food waste. We actually call it food leftovers. So what we do is we actually provide them bins, uh, one for the produce, one for the meats. Uh, they're kept in the cold chain, uh, which is really key and critical. Uh, it maintains the temperature of that food and we can actually truly upcycle it. So it's never deemed waste. Uh, based upon the, the food hierarchy, uh, of course, the, the maximum usage of food is to be always fed to humans. So we, of course, try to uh, maximize the donations to any local food banks as possible. Um, but what we're doing is we're picking up close to 200 tons every single day uh, at each one of our facilities. And we look to build about 30 or 40 of these nationwide. Um, and what we do is we bring back that food every single day, um, take about 35% meat, 65% fruits and vegetables and grind it up and, and digest it down to a, a level. And then we can actually... Uh, create a uniquely uh, differentiated animal feed the very next day. So we can literally take the same food that you and I were eating this morning and feed it to our animals tomorrow in a nutriently consistent pathogen-free way uh, that fits directly into the feed mill infrastructure of many of the chicken and, and, uh, and, and processors uh, throughout the, the US, really creating a completely closed loop system. And, and what we like to say is we're actually really reverting nature back to the way it intended to operate where we all used to grow up on farms and, and take our dinner plates and feed it to our chickens, pigs, and pets out back. They grew healthier, they grew better, and they grew in a closed loop way. And we really maximize the usage of that food um, to really create a closed loop uh, system that's more resource effective and efficient. Um, so we're excited by how we're scaling that, um, but it's really predicated on how do we upcycle the food 
of course, after human donations can occur. And based upon the EPA and the FDA food hierarchy, the actual next best maximum usage of that food is to be fed to animals. Um, and so the background of the family, building, owning and operating nationwide infrastructure, we've done about $4 billion to date, really enables us to take a large scale macro approach uh, to working with some of the biggest companies to really help move the needle uh, substantially in the sustainability avenues. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about, about what you're doing. And it kind of feeds into um, the next, pun intended, um, the next um, topic of sustainability. And this goes to you, Sam, as chef at the White House for, um, for the Obamas, what were some of the ways in which you ensured sustainability? And how did you deal with the issues of food waste from both the garden and the kitchen? Um, yeah, so first of all, great to be here uh, and, you know, excited for this, this conversation. It's obviously a critical one. Um, so, you know, when we were in the White House, uh, you know, health and sustainability were kind of two of the core goals of the administration and many different facets of how we did policy around the, the, the administration. Um, and from sort of the, you know, I think what was very important to, to both the president and first lady, especially, especially Michelle, was, you know, that we were uh, living our values and living, uh, you know, our policies internally. And um, so we worked very hard to do a number of things. I mean, I think one, and I think it is important to point out that there's, it's not a one for one, but there's a deep correlation between what's good for us and what's good for the planet. And, um, and so a lot of the strategies that we look to employ had positive benefits on both. And so that meant a lot of things. I mean, the first thing we did was dig up the, the most famous, grass in the world and plant a bunch of vegetables, uh, which now seems like a totally normal thing to do. And like, yeah, of course there's a vegetable garden the, at the White House, but, but let me tell you, uh, that was a crazy idea. And I, and I know for a fact that's true because when I talked to the grounds crew about doing it, they just, it was like I was speaking German to them. They had no idea what I was talking about. And in fact, offered me like this teeny little plot behind a bunch of trees in the back behind the shed. And it was like, no, I don't think you understand what what I'm talking about, how about right here in the middle of the South grounds? And they were, you know, like their heads exploded. So we, we, we had a good compromise in the end. But the point is, is that, you know, it starts with plants in terms of sustainability and making sure that we're both for our health and for our planet, that we're having a light footprint of what we choose and plants are uh, the lightest way to go. So we were always making sure that we highlighted, uh, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, where they came from, the farmers that grew them and, and how we needed to like respect uh, all that resources and labor and, and hard work that went into producing those products and then use them wisely. Um, so that was kind of at the core, both from a health perspective and a sustainability perspective, you know, kind of a, a cornerstone. And then I think um, we worked any surplus we were giving away to local that we grew in the garden, for example, we would give away to uh, local soup kitchens who were cooking for low income uh, or homeless populations. Um, and then we had a big compost. I, I, I very proud of the first beehive and also the first compost on the South grounds. Uh, and we had, you know, a pretty significant amount of compost that we create uh, at the White House every, every, uh, every year to help fertilize the, the soil. Um, and, you know, I think that was really both for us to try to model what we were pushing forward in the country, but also then sent, you know, create a, a really symbolic, uh, you know, send out a powerful symbol for the country about, you know, here's a path forward that can help the country 
uh, on both of these sort of critical issues that we faced. Wonderful. Yeah, I remember um, going um, and visiting the garden and it was just, it brought so much joy to my heart just to know that there was one right there and um, how it was being used and the passion um, that that you all had behind it. Um, it was it was quite something to see. Yeah, I mean, uh, one other thing to briefly add, you know, just the switching from the pyramid to, to the plate, which was also a really important part of how then we started communicating to the general public around these core values and and on that plate half the plate was fruits and vegetables it can be any fruit and vegetable you want prepared however you want but if you just started there and we made it just simple as we could to the behavioral economics sort of angle of this about how do you transmit information in a way that people can actually incorporate into their lives in an easy way you know half the plate fruits and vegetables the other you know quarter whole grains and all of a sudden we we're well on our way to a more healthy and a more sustainable planet and um and so, yeah, all those pieces start, you start building on them and putting them together and, you know, we got a lot done. Yeah. And uh, I, I know there's always questions about food waste. Like what would you, uh, I know you said you would give them to um, the home, homeless population. Was it okay at that time to like give the, just give the food away? Were there any health guidelines or issues that, that were faced? Um, well, we were, you know, uh, we were harvesting vegetables. Most of what we were giving away was excess that we had um, grown. So uh, maybe we violated some kind of rule, but I think we were okay. <laughs> they were very ex excited to take our cucumbers and such. Uh, 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 but obviously there are, you know, barriers particularly around prepared foods that, uh, you know, we, we face in terms of making sure we can get those uh, that that food donated and I, look I, I where you draw the policy line on those complicated I mean you you know we care about those people's well-being as well so you can't give them food that can make them sick on the other hand we don't want to see food go to waste and so it's trying to find a pragmatic balance where there's some protection but but doesn't stifle uh you know feeding those who need it uh, sure. and not wasting the food yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Cowie, we're going to now go to you. And Tristan talked about upcycling. And as the founder of Barnana Snacks, um, you've been a catalyst for the upcycled food movement that's gaming, gaining a lot of steam um, and is one of the tools that can help reduce food waste at the start of the food chain before food gets to a consumer. Um, I think food, I think upcycling is a, is a new term for a lot of people. Can you explain what exactly upcycled foods are and can you tell us how you got started with upcycling bananas? Yes, of course. And uh, thank you uh, for having me, uh, Jillian, and uh, great job as a last minute moderator. You're doing great. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, before explaining what upcycling is, I would like to like clarify the difference between uh, recycling and upcycling. Uh, our, our most famous uh, second cousin to recycling is when you are picking up something that uh, was already in the trash or that you're no longer using to throw away and changing that into something new. Upcycling, we are using something that uh, could be a byproduct of a uh, food that is being processed that is still perfectly fine, but uh, otherwise would go to waste. In our case, uh, we are using bananas that don't qualify uh, to be exported as fresh produce. So these are perfect bananas, nothing wrong with, wrong with them, but they are, uh, don't qualify uh, as, as fresh produce. Um, and took me a while to, to learn about this and understand 
why they did not qualify. Because when I started Barnana, um, we didn't know about food waste. It's not something that we talk about. Um, and it was not something that I, I knew uh, it existed. So uh, I was actually set out, setting out to launch a company based on a product that I grew up eating in Brazil. So the idea was just to create these delicious banana bites that were healthy and good for you. And decided to visit banana farms. The bananas were being processed in the middle of the farm. They're washing them. And a big part of them was they were chucking them to the side. And that pile of bananas on the side, on the dirt kept growing. And I, I asked them, what's going on here? And they said, those are the seconds, the rejects. We cannot um, export them. And I went up and I pick, picked them up and I couldn't understand why. So I, I got some bananas so we you guys could understand what I experienced. The bananas look like this. So they were green bananas that looked perfect to me, but they said they are not green enough. So as you can see, they already have a little yellow shade. And because of that, the ripening process already started. So they cannot be stopped. So the bananas that we buy at the grocery store, when they are exported, they're extremely green, way greener than this. So just for the fact that they are not green enough, they don't qualify. And that is up to like 20% of all bananas that we grow don't leave the farm. And bananas, uh, a little fact about bananas here, they are the number one selling item in grocery stores. Here in the US, we love bananas. People eat bananas every day. So there's a massive production of bananas um, to cater this, this addiction that we have. And a lot of them don't make the cut. So that's when I realized that we could make a big difference. Uh, buying those bananas, we, we are reducing food waste, creating a second source of income to the farmers and, and helping uh, this, this, this uh, global warming problem that we have. Um, so it was a win-win uh, situation. So we get these bananas. We still have to wait for them to ripen, and we transform them into delicious snacks. So that's the idea of upcycling. You get a product that otherwise would go to waste, and you, you make a premium product out of that. You add value to that product. And uh, so we make a lot of, we make banana bites. We make tortilla chips. We make plantain chips. So we, we do everything with bananas and, and plantains that you could possibly imagine. And, uh, and it's great that people are accepting that. Uh, they, they love the products and they know they're supporting companies like ours. They are doing their part in helping uh, reduce food waste. Wonderful, thank you so much. And I will attest, their products are really great. And I love, you know, as a consumer, I think it's really important to, um, I, at least for me, to know my carbon footprint and know that what I'm what I'm purchasing um, really has added value, and I believe your products um, do just that. Um, and now we go to you um, as former USDA secretary. One of your many responsibilities was to oversee the management of the nation's food and nutrition programs. Can you talk a little bit about um, food security issues that we face today? and how food waste um, is proving to have a really large role in that? Yeah. <clears throat> yes, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be here uh, with all of you today. Um, you know, I think that, that what has happened during this almost year now since we've been involved in COVID and the impact it's had on the economy and on our daily lives, we've seen you know, a huge kind of shift in 
in food demand, how people are demanding it and so forth. So, I mean, one of the first things we've seen is all the people that have lined up for food banks. The food banks are experiencing demand like they've never had before. Um, and USDA has a number of programs that help address food insecurity. The most important one, of course, is the SNAP program, what many people refer to as food stamps. But SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which allows people to get um, EBT cards, electronic benefit cards, to use in grocery stores to purchase food. Uh, we also have in the USDA authorities the Women, Infants, and Children program. Of course, they run the school lunch program. This, that program has seen a huge pivot during COVID because a lot of the schools that aren't open for children now are actually still handing out school lunches to children and that's helped to address some of the hunger problem that we've seen since COVID. Um, USDA also has authorities to purchase for school lunch. They also have authorities to purchase for food banks. Um, I think following up on some of the things that Sam said about the food pyramid and the plate, uh, USDA along with um, the um, uh, Department of Health and Human Services does the dietary guidelines for Americans. Um, USDA has also ha uh, put together a food waste task force along with the uh, EPA, recognizing this is a big environmental program problem as well as a food waste problem. They put together this task force, which I hope will continue to look at these issues from a policy perspective. Um, from the food waste perspective also, we saw at the beginning of this pandemic, a lot of food that didn't have an outlet. So we heard about, you know, hogs being slaughtered because there wasn't an outlet to them. And there was food that was going to waste in the farms. What we, what people really recognized during the beginning of the pandemic was that about 50% of our food was going through uh, out of home channels. So restaurants, uh, you know, uh, uh, in entertainment parks like sporting events and Disneyland and hotels and, and airplanes and ships, all of which that line sh shut down. And a lot of farmers had contracts. So the food system really had to pivot, which it did pretty quickly. But in the meantime, there was some wasted food, which I think was very difficult for people to see, but most of that was able to pivot quite quickly. A lot of it's gone into food banks and a lot of it's now been into the, the, more, the greater demand within the grocery stores. Um, so I think that this issue is something that uh, certainly needs to be on the, the front and center of the government as they look at policies for the future and the work that some of you are doing, KDC Ag and others, uh, to really look at these from an environmental perspective and what can be done with food product that's not used for the future is essential. Thank you. And, and Anne, do you think that with a new administration, do you, do you think that there would be more of a focus on, on food waste? Or do you think that the partnership with the EPA is, um, is going to be kind of um, what it is right now? Well, I'm not sure about that, but I do think that generally with the um, 
the emphasis that this new administration and the president-elect has put on uh, climate, the environment, uh, that food waste will be one of the elements of looking at that whole structure of how we go forward in this country, really looking at, at climate change and you know the contributors to that. And certainly food waste is one of those. So I'm sure that it'll be high on the agenda. Absolutely, thank you for that. And Justin, I know you believe in proving the theory that environmentally sustainable investments provide better yields compared to conventional investments. How can this be done successfully? Because I believe that you're doing it successfully, but I, I feel like um, there are many people who'd like to know how it can be done in the right way. Yeah, so um, when we first got started about 10, 12 years ago as a family focused on the sustainable technologies, uh, we originally got into solar. Uh, we were really some of the pioneers in the energy markets on the East Coast. And we built about $400 million worth of solar projects for companies like Pfizer and Eli Lilly. And we, we made Six Flags the first amusement park in the world to be 100% by solar. And then about five years ago is when we started to really recognize the shift in the movement into the circular economy. Um, and as people that build infrastructure, you have a supply and you have an offtake, right? So and then you're in between processing something. Well, in this case for the circular economy, whether it be cardboard, whether it be waste, whether it be food, whatever, whatever the input is, you're able to likely get that ingredient for free or significantly cheaper than anything else that you would have to go off and source. So we look at that as your, one of your large components is actually coming to you at a significantly discount or people are even paying you to get rid of it. Um, so that's a, a huge component of the kind of thesis that the circular economy, if we are able to utilize resources in a much more efficient and effective manner, we can really create an economic vehicle. Population is going up, resources are going down, and there's a tremendous inefficiency no matter what market you really look at in between the consumers and the production. Um, and then when we look at how do we really scale this, it's, it's taking the engineering understanding and, and how do we really do so at a large scale that then creates or upcycles a product into a usable form or function uh, coming out the back door of the production facility. And what we look at and we typically try to figure out is if we're getting the supply for free or cheaper, how do we create a ingredient or a product that goes into the existing current marketplace um, that we can peg against a standard commodity um, or something that's currently being utilized into the marketplace where we don't have to try to change the business practices of major corporations or whoever we're selling that product to. So if we're able to link a relatively free supply with then a product that is cheaper or better um, or more sustainable, to a global commodity marketplace where we know that there's the consumption desires that um, exceed what we could even produce in five or 10 years, then we, we look at that as pretty unique. Um, and from the economic perspective, yeah, we're, we're looking at um, pretty substantial returns uh, based upon all of that. Um, and I think that's the excite, exciting thing around this whole closed loop system. That's the exciting thing about the next five or 10 years that we absolutely have to get to. We need to be more resource effective and efficient. We can't be wasting everything. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think everyone's looking for the same things as to how do you uh, improve upon, upon the economy in the US? How do you in, in, increase jobs? That's a lot of infrastructure jobs that we can create. 
how do you be less reliant upon imports and, and really create a closed loop system means that we can be more resource effective and efficient within the, the United States and really drive the right economy and the right growth platform that can feed and supply everything that we would want. Yeah, that's, uh, it's so extremely important. And, you know, earthday.org, we, this year, our theme for 2021 is restore our earth. And it, you know, it's very telling of where we are, um, you know, what we want to see happen with our planet. And Sam, so this kind of, um, this next question goes to you and it, it's along those lines. Um, because what we do put on our plates and how we grow our food does have a profound effect on our health. How do we secure a more sustainable future for the health of not just ourselves, but the planet as well? <laughs> how much time do we got? Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a big old question. Uh, currently working on a book, uh, try to answer that question actually. Uh, look, I, look, I, I mean, I, I, we always want to find kind of here's what the one thing we should do or the two things we should do. I think it's, you know, what we eat is a, is a, a product of a number of key forces. First and foremost, and I think the part that gets the least amount of attention is, is it, it's a real expression of our culture of like who we are, what our core value is, how we identify ourselves and, and what we care about. Um, and so we have to continue to, to work very, you know, uh, diligently and consciously on shifting the core values of our culture when it comes to what we're putting on our plates. And those core values should be around our, our well-being, the, uh, the well-being of the planet and the well-being of those who are producing it. And I think um, that's sort of first and foremost. Once we continue to evolve that, we create the conditions for then our policy to start reflecting those core values because voters are caring about this and voting on it. So then our politicians will start to respond uh, as they should. And what we're seeing is businesses definitely starting to respond to the shift that's underway uh, in terms of shifting of values and demand uh, from consumers, particularly younger ones. So I think that has to continue to, to happen. Um, and I think, you know, uh, without a doubt, uh, continued investment in technology, innovation, new models, new ways of, of bringing food to the table does two things. I think it continues to one, create new, you know, the food companies of the future that are going to do it different and do it better. And two, also puts a lot of pressure on the incumbents who have, you know, obviously a pretty strong grip on, on the marketplace to change themselves. And it's a conversation between the innovators and the incumbents that, um, you know, really leads us to a better place. And so I think when you put those pieces together, uh, that's how we're going to kind of rebuild or evolve our current way of doing business to one that's going to meet the kind of core needs of planet and and eater um but we have to put those at the heart of our system and right now at the heart has been convenience uh and you know profit and with profit's always going to be a part of it, it should be busy you know i think one thing people forget is that eating and food system is an inherently private sector endeavor the government plays a role of course and 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 I both had some experience in seeing like what is the role and, and the power and there are some really important places for it to play but for the most part government doesn't really have much control of what goes on our plates and kind of sets guardrails to keep things in line but I couldn't wave a magic wand and say you will eat this and God knows you know after four years of what we just went through uh I'm glad he wasn't able to tell me what to eat so you know like that's good I think there's a healthy 
kind of role for the government to play. But I think, <clears throat> you know, in the end, um, it's going to be that kind of innovation, that kind of work that sees uh, us getting getting sort of different outcomes uh, from what we're eating. I agree. Thank you so much. Um, and Anne, I know you you obviously covered a lot of the the government um, side of things, but as executive director at UNICEF, you gained firsthand knowledge of how children's lives were being saved and improved as a result of programs um, and assistance by UNICEF and its partners, witnessing the devastation caused by natural disasters, conflict, disease, and exploitation. How has your work with UNICEF impacted um, what, what you're doing today? And I also note that you serve on the board of Full Harvest as well. Um, I'm just kind of interested in seeing um, how, how, if it's come full circle and if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, well, yes, uh, you know, there was a lot of overlap between my work at USDA, which clearly had all of the nutrition programs of the US government and the work at UNICEF, where we really uh, addressed issues of severe acute malnutrition among populations. We had programs that were you know, uh, ready to use therapeutic foods. We were a big purchaser of that for programs being used in the field. Um, and I think, you know, it's it, because of my background in agriculture, I, as I traveled around, I was very interested in some of the food issues. And one of the things about, as we talk about food waste, which is recognized as a global issue, it's recognized in the sustainable development goals, which replace the millennium development goals as something that has to be addressed, sustainable farming, looking at uh, the whole food waste issue. But in the in the developing world, it's, it's uh, the food waste is more around inadequate storage systems. So grain may get insect infestation when it's stored or in transportation, lack of refrigerated transportation and so forth. So you lose a lot of the product. So while ours is more at the consumer end, theirs is more at the pre-consumer end, but it's, these are still two issues that need to be addressed. And I think that we have to look at both the, the, the problem globally of food waste, as well as you know, domestically, and what are the best ways to address it. I do sit also on the board of Full Harvest, um, which is uh, a looking at sort of imperfect product, uh, similar to Barnana. Uh, and then finding other outlets for it. So primarily fruits and vegetables, much of which are grown in California. Um, and you know, looking at outlets in terms of whether it's juicing or other processed products. And they are actually beginning to label some of the product with uh, you know, sort of a recycled product or upcycled product label. Uh, full harvest. And I think that these are the kind of things, it's similar, you know, there's also programs around imperfect produce, I think is another one. But these are the kind of programs that are using product that would have otherwise been left at the, in the field, uh, such as the bananas, because there was not a market, because it didn't meet the grade to go in the grocery stores. There are clearly places for these products to go. And I think whether it's, you know, CSAs, or uh, processing products, baby food, you don't need a perfect piece of fruit to go into juice or um, you know, baby food or some other kind of processed product. So I think 
everybody's looking at these issues differently, looking at how to address the, the product left in the field. And I think we all have an obligation to, you know, continue to support those kinds of efforts as we go forward. I completely agree. And Cowie, this is a great segue into your question as what do you see as the future of upcycled foods? And can you give today's attendees any advice on how they can participate in upcycling? I think the future is very bright. I mean, compared to when I started the company where we didn't know that food waste was an issue. And uh, I remember a few years after launching, there was a journalist that wanted to write an article about upcycling and about the work that we were doing, but he needed more companies um, to be part of that article. And we could not find enough companies uh, to put in that article. And that was in 2013, 2014, so not long ago. Uh, Barnana now is part of uh, a founding member of the Upcycle Food Association. So we now have association and in a very short period of time, there is 135 companies that already joined, uh, most in the US, but there's companies from 20 different countries. Full Harvest is one, is one of the companies that is, is a member of the, the association. So the idea is to really uh, educate consumers on food waste, on upcycling and uh, support those companies to uh, succeed. So as a consumer, uh, it's fairly simple. We, uh, the companies, we are doing the work. All you have to do is do your research, learn uh, about these companies and support them. So vote uh, with your dollars. Once you, because as Sam mentioned that the government is not involved, uh, they, there's very little effort from the government to change that, but there's a lot of private companies doing so. So if you support those companies, you're helping reduce food waste. Um, so fairly simple. You can also, I think we have to be mindful about um, what we do at home. At Barnett and a lot of companies, we are tackling the problem at the source, at the farms or transportation. But uh, a big part of food waste happens uh, at home when we buy too much food, uh, life gets on the way, and then you open your fridge, uh, your cauliflower is going bad, the carrots are mushy. So uh, just be more mindful about uh, what we buy and how uh, we use them. So I I'm excited. I think people are uh, more conscious about that. They realize that uh, we have a big problem and we all have to do our part. And it's, when, it's not a big ask. There are like little changes that you can do, but they have collectively a big impact. So um, panels like this, like we are educating a lot of people. And I think uh, this is part of the difference. Just the fact that we're talking about is that there is a change already. I completely agree. Thank you so much. And wasted food isn't just a societal or human humanitarian concern. It's also an environmental one. Um, and when we waste food, we waste all the energy and the water it takes to grow, harvest, transport, package. Shetha, as a risk and behavioral scientist, why do you think there are so many individuals, um, especially I feel like in the United States and people in power that deny that climate change is actually happening and how can we begin to shift mindsets? Yeah, great question. I mean, food waste is one of the many subsets of uh, sustainability issues associated with the warming planet. And so we need to tackle the core issue, which is why aren't we putting all the solutions on the table from behavioral interventions to science to technology to address this very complex interconnected global risk that is the planet warming and its many ripple effects. And where can we find those cost-effective interventions that are part of the part of that toolkit? And I love how Sam was talking about that. You know, there's innovation, there's advancement, 
And I just want to add to that. There's also behavioral tweaks. There's better communication um, that can address some of the distrust that has led to this polarization that has resulted in people digging their heels in on one camp or another on as to whether or not they even believe with the fundamental issue, which is why we're having this conversation ultimately, which is that the planet is warming. And the reason for that to give a little bit of context is the way our brains are wired. We, we have established ourselves in, as a civilization, but we started in small groupings and that's what we are intrinsically most comfortable with. And so we trust smaller groups of people and we have to identify that we have shared values with them because that tribal identity is also everything. If you separated from your tribe from the beginning of our um, the dawn of our species, the likelihood you would survive was low. So our tribal identity is very much integrated into the need to just truly survive. Um, but our brains aren't wired for where we are now. You know, this massive global interconnected society where the, the risk landscape that we live in and then the environment we live in is much more complex than anything that we were faced with millennia ago. In the past, we would be worried about how to survive if we came across a tiger. Now we have to worry about what are the implications of our food choices? Where are we getting our water from? Is, it, is there some toxic chemical associated in, um, in something we're consuming that could hurt our children, could hurt our communities? And so that is something that we first need to understand and then overcome through better and more effective communication. So why is it that people today, we can tell that based on whether or not they're willing to wear a mask, or whether or not they agree or believe in climate change, where they fall on the political spectrum. That's, that's something very new that we're experiencing in modern society that's never happened before, that all of these different things are correlated. And it's again, because people are digging their heels in to belong to a tribe because that's truly our wiring. That's our survival instinct. So we need to recognize that and communicate accordingly. Find people that are trusted within different groups and organizations and have them being the ones who are able to uh, disseminate the science in a way that will be interpreted as intended. So it's the same science, it's the same facts, it's the same evidence, whether we're talking about climate change or food waste, but it doesn't have to be packaged in the same way. In fact, I recommend it doesn't be. We need to communicate through trusted people that the end recipients believe in. And that's how we're going to begin to reduce some of this distrust and improve upon polarization. And it's critical, right? We see the situation we're in. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I can't believe it's already been 53 minutes. Um, so we are going to go into um, question and answer from the audience. And I think this question will probably um, go to Sam and Anne. Um, it's someone who, um, uh, let's see, anonymous. They, uh, they say school cafeterias. Students are forced to take a fruit and veggie with their meal. I watch oranges and apples being thrown in the trash every single day. What can we do in school buildings to eliminate food waste? I always defer to Anne, so <laughs> I'm happy to take it, but always, you know, I know, I know where I sit in this one. Oh, you lost her. I'm happy to take it. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, um, <laughs> okay, so this, this I, I've actually spent a lot of time fighting this one uh, because um, the, we know, and this, you know, goes into deep behavioral economics uh, that kids, so the, the origin of kids being served with fruit and vegetable stems from the fact that uh, we know that 
uh, if kids are just offered one, uh, they're unlikely to take it. If it's on their plate, the chances of them consuming it dramatically increase. So uh, from a policy standpoint, um, it seems uh, critical to make sure that our children are being served the basic nutrition that they need. And, um, and that's why that policy is what it is. And, and uh, I could not feel stronger that that's the right policy. Now there is um, the you know, outcome where some of that food goes to waste. Uh, there are app, there's um, different schools who take different approaches. A lot of schools have policies that you're not allowed to share your food. There's some schools who, for things like apples and oranges and bananas that have, you know, an outside to them, where they're put on a shared table and other kids can pick them up if they want an extra piece of fruit or they can take it home with them. In those schools, uh, waste is quite minimal. Um, and, you know, I, I think... So there's ways to, because uh, remember, a huge percentage of those kids in our country uh, rely mostly or entirely on school nutrition for their calories. Um, and so I got to tell you, if you let other kids take an extra banana and apple home, uh, we're not going to waste much food. So there's some pretty easy tweaks that we can make. Um, and quite frankly, that was used, you know, that debate has been used to try to undermine good solid nutrition standards uh, in schools. I think so, um, while it's a, the waste in schools is a problem, I gotta tell you like, since the beginning of the school nutrition program, kids are gonna throw away some food and uh, it's a price that we pay very consciously to make sure that most kids are getting basic nutritional needs met. Um, so we should try to keep pushing on it, but it's not, not the right answer to say, let's not give them fruits and vegetables because some of them might not eat it. I, I agree. Anne, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with that, that answer. I also think that there is evidence that a lot of children have not been exposed to very many fruits and vegetables in their homes. And so if you educate children on eating the fruits and vegetables, there has been some evidence that shows they'll go home and talk to their parents about these fruits and vegetables that they like and encourage their, their parents to buy them. And so I think there are ways we can combine, you know, school feeding programs along with nutrition education. And it's very critical because we have an obesity crisis in this country that is beyond belief. Uh, you know, I think over 40% of the adults are now obese in this country. And that starts with childhood eating habits. And if we don't really begin to address some of these issues, the cost of healthcare in this country will continue to go up because the food related uh, diseases are the things that really drive healthcare. So obesity relates to diabetes, it relates to cancer, it relates to heart disease. And by the way, these are also the conditions that are making COVID worse for the people who get it. So I think we have to look at the interconnectedness of all these issues. Yeah, and I think part of just, a, if I might add so, um, to that, I just couldn't agree more. I, we're, we're, we're setting uh, norms in our schools for kids and yeah. we're teaching them by what we put on the plate about what a normal meal looks like, what the expectations should be and what we're expected. So we should be setting like you should, normal part of a meal is having a piece of fruit. 
and that it becomes their new normal if they that's all they've seen since they were five it's critical to help shape our culture and our cultural norms for the future um uh in, in that direction just a quick little story uh, once we changed the policy uh for school nutrition and in, and mandated more fruits and vegetables in the program uh, I ran into a bunch of grocers at the School Nutrition Association uh, conference and they were like walking around the, the floor and I was like, what are you guys doing here? I don't understand why you're here. A bunch of the big supermarket folks. And they're like, well, we're having a problem because we couldn't figure out we were getting random runs on vegetables. Like we'd get like a run on cauliflower, then we'd be sold out on butternut squash and we couldn't figure out what was going on. It was super random. And then we realized like the school had served it that week and the kids went home and, and asked for cauliflower squash or whatever. And they were now trying to figure out what schools were going to serve so they could better order so they could meet the demand that was being generated by the schools. So like we understand this ecosystem and, and if, any, if you have $1, the best way to get a return on these issues is to invest it in kids and to make sure they're getting their needs met, they're getting educated, and we're helping to shape how they approach it um, for the long term. So. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, when I was at the USDA, we created and implemented um, school garden programs um, in tandem with the First Ladies Let's Move initiative. But when you see children have ownership of something, um, when they can, when they don't know where their food comes from and you show them this is what, a bro what broccoli looks like and they don't understand that it stems from a seed um, and they have full ownership of that, the excitement um, on their face and, you know, the, the want to wanting to keep having those vegetables at home is extremely important. Um, you know, I think we were both able to see that. If I could add uh, something, because I totally agree with Anne and Sam, I wanna share a personal experience. At the early days of our Nana, I used to do a lot of demos in the stores. So sampling the product, direct to the consumers, getting that direct feedback. And something that I, that I saw a lot of times was parents saying, oh, don't give to my kid, he's not gonna like it. So uh, parents have this preconceived idea that kids don't like healthy foods. So the parents are already saying, don't give it to him, he doesn't like it. And I would say, he didn't try. So let's see what he thinks. So at the moment that the kid would eat, he was like, oh, I really like this. So uh, it comes all from that education, like uh, parents that are already unhealthy, they're saying, oh, I don't like this, my kid's not gonna, gonna like, so they don't get exposed in first place. If they don't, don't get exposed at home, they're not gonna eat. So once they come at home, they all, I, I don't like that. So uh, it goes back to what they said. I think the more education and more sampling of those foods, they will like it and we'll, that's the way that we can change. Yeah, I completely agree. And then, um, Kawi, this actually question, this question's for you. Um, this is from uh, Facebook. Uh, based on your model, why do other companies that peddle dehydrated foods and vegetables not purchase produce that has been reached to the point where it becomes wasted? And can consumers impact that life cycle in other ways? Uh, that is, I, I think, is the same way um that I didn't know that there was food waste is still very new. I think there is opportunity for every single company to be incorporating uh, upcycle ingredients in, in their snacks. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why other companies don't do. I think one of the challenges are, uh, it's very difficult to collect some of those items. At the food, at the banana industry, because there's so many of them and they are all collected in one place, it's easier for us to do that work. But I have seen 
in other uh, uh, farms like lemon farms, avocado farms, oranges. Uh, the amount that drops is not enough where the farmers uh, would cost more for them to pick those fruits than the amount that they can get for that. And I think uh, uh, the work that Justin is doing is great because it's something that we thought about doing before. There's a lot of waste of bananas at the grocery stores, but it was not enough where we could go and collect them to do a product. But uh, there is always a more uh, uh, innovative way and other companies trying to solve those problems. So I think eventually more companies will be uh, trying to utilize all those fruits and veggies that, uh, that go to waste. Thank you so much. And Justin, um, there's, a there's a question from Trevor who says, where um, does your organization work operate? Um, and can you talk a little bit more about what it is that um, you do? Um, yeah, so we're, we're expanding across the United States in a variety of fashions uh, to kind of create these macro closed loop systems. Um, more of what we do, um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're working with uh, in each location about 400 to 500 supermarkets uh, that we collect from each day. Um, and we bring it back to our processing facility that same day, kept in the cold chain, and we convert all of that food down to the animal feed level. Um, and then we're excited to uh, utilize that into a variety of different functions as an upcycled ingredient. Um, and so that's really setting the playbook um, to really now expand nationwide um, and really sit here and say that over the next kind of five or seven years, we can solve food waste uh, across the nation from supermarkets. Um, that's where we are focused. It's the high volume and high value food, um, and it's consistent for us. Uh, if you think about walking into any supermarket across the nation, um, you can buy pretty much any food, no matter the season. Um, seasonality doesn't exist in the United States supermarket shelves anymore. Um, you can get whatever you want at all times. So from a waste perspective or a leftover perspective is what we call it. Um, it actually makes for a, a, an amazing consistent supply that we can really process and then provide to our clients a, a nutriently consistent feed product. Thank you for that. So we have two questions. We have two questions left. Um, and this is from, um, let's see here. This is from Kristen. Um, Shetha, we'll throw this to you. Um, can you share some basic concepts and behavior changes that, that most people might be able to do and any tips for those who have contact with the public to increase broader awareness of food waste? Yeah, absolutely. Use your networks and put this information out there because people really do get information from the people closest to them and those that they trust. That's friends, families, um, influential figures in the community. So the more science and evidence that you have that you're comfortable with spreading through your networks, the better. So everybody has a role to play. You don't have to be a certified communicator, media expert or anything like that. You as you, if you eat food, every day, then you have a vested interest in reducing food waste and seeing that we are using the precious resources on this planet to the best that we can, um, especially given just how quickly we're still on this warming trajectory. So everyone has a role to play and please contribute that evidence and science and facts to your networks. So that's, I wanna say that first off. And then there's, um, there's a lot of examples of things you can do to just change your, reduce the friction 
uh, for bad habits and improve decision-making in your day-to-day. -day. One quick example is when you buy new food products, make it set, up, set it up in your refrigerator the way that good grocery stores set it up. So the most um, the one that is most closest to its expiration date is the easiest to reach. So what you don't want to do is have milk that's expiring in a few days and you go out, you buy new milk and that goes right in the front and then you start using the new milk and then the one that's expiring ends up getting wasted, right? So, or non-milk products <laughs> as well. <laughs> Plug for vegans. Um, but the point is, is you want to you want to set it up and make it easiest for you to reach for those products that are more quickly to expire so that you reduce the food waste. That's one example. And then maybe have what I would call, and uh, I can't take credit for this term. This is what Jack Bobo actually came up with, but it got a lot of traction when we published this together was um, we need to talk about food waste, not as food waste, but maybe as garbage chic. Let's make <laughs> let's make ugly foods or food scraps or things that you would maybe throw away but are still nutritious and edible. Let's let's make it garbage chic, right? Maybe we can hashtag that and create like a garbage chic dinner party once a week. So you and your friends um, that are socially distancing together, maybe come up with a event that really um, the, similar to what Dan Barber did with his Blue Hill pop-up restaurant called Wasted, something along those lines where groups of friends or families come together again, given COVID, it's not gonna be as feasible, but um, the idea is to use those scraps that would have been thrown away to rather have a dinner party and tag it as garbage chic. So those are a few ideas. We can actually turn this around and make it a fun, cool thing that maybe at some point as well, the influencers pick up on because we need to merge more science and communication with different circles of people like in entertainment, like in um, media and spread the message further and wider, but it starts with every individual and in their own homes. Thank you so much for that. And why don't we just kind of go around and everyone can share um, one or two tips um, as well. The audience really wants to hear from everyone. So Sam, we could start with you. What tips that, one or two tips that you might have for reducing food waste? You're on mute. Um, yeah, I think the other thing, so I totally agree uh, in terms of what, you eat what you see. So you know, uh, just keep that in mind as you organize, both from a waste and a health perspective. I think the other thing I would say on the waste side is just is to take a few minutes and create a plan, uh, uh, like on Sunday or on Saturday and then do some cooking on Sunday and just have a plan for your week. Cause I think a lot of times, um, you know, you don't know what you want to get too much. You don't cook it. It's in the bottom bin. You forget about it. And, you know, then that's what runs and gets you into trouble over time. And then you, then what happens is you waste it. You don't want to buy it anymore. And then you start eating more poorly, right? So it has a dual effect. Um, so I'd say do a little menu planning can go a long way in managing your, your food uh, better. Great. Justin, what tips do you have? Uh, so unlike Sam, I'm not a chef. Um, so I, 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 <laughs> And not doing all that. Don't take um, any advice from him on anything. Like that. <laughs> uh, but but the one little hack that I do is, I mean, anything that I see in my fridge from strawberries, blueberries, uh, the lettuce kind of vibe, anything like that. Uh, and that starts to kind of go a little bit bad or just starting to recognize kind of some spoilage. It's I throw it kind of in a, in a blender and make a smoothie. Uh, so that's kind of my little personal hack. Um, but I think as a, Kali, I think you, you said it the, the best, which I think is is the key and critical aspect. If we want to, as a society, help solve this problem, which is a massive undertaking and a massive problem that, quite frankly, has to be solved, 
um, it all comes down to the consumers. If the consumers can really drive their purchasing habits to really want and desire these types of products and require big corporations on down to focus and utilize this, the technologies are there, the, the capabilities are there. It's now just up to us as consumers to drive enough awareness that it becomes an economic decision first and foremost for the, the largest corporations on down. Thank you. Anne? Yeah, a couple of things. <clears throat> One is, I think, just to follow up on, on what Justin is saying, um, there are technologies out there that are beginning to help address some of these issues. So, for example, I talked about full harvest before. One of the one of the things that's making that possible is having um, the technology development to actually connect the buyers and the sellers through a platform that has been developed that wasn't there before. So I think those kinds of technologies. I also um, met a startup in Israel when I was there about a year and a half ago. Um, and one of the things they were working on with grocery stores is variable pricing. So as you see a product start to get nearer to its expiration date, they reduce the prices through a, a, a program that will allow you to then separate those out and then people can get uh, uh, products at a reduced price, which helps to address some of the food waste problem that would be coming out of the grocery stores. Um, the other pet peeve I have is that people don't know how to cook. And if, you, if people would have simple cooking skills, they would eat healthier and they would also know how to you know, take food waste and make it into soups or stews or those kinds of things and I, or smoothies. But I think that, uh, I think there's a lot that can be done to help educate people about how to cook food, how to cook healthier, how to eat healthier, and how to utilize the product that you have in your refrigerator in creative ways so that it doesn't go to waste. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Kawe? Uh, and I think one of the silver linings of COVID at, is that people learn how to cook, at least a lot of people, because they were home more often, they were forced to do so. There was times where they could not go out and buy uh, ready to eat food or could order. So they had to learn. And that was, uh, I think, one of the good things. Um, and and uh, Swata, I think I'm gonna uh, quote you and, and start using what you said at the beginning of the call. Maybe it's just uh, rebranding and making those foods cool. So maybe I'll start saying banana. We have kick butt bananas. That might be the way to get kids to eat them. And I think that what Justin said was great. If you have uh, fruits and veggies, they're about to go bad, put them in the blender. If you're not ready to put them in the blender at that time, put them in the freezer. So once you, uh, you're ready, you can blend them even better. Uh, one of the things that uh, people did a lot at the beginning of COVID was banana bread. If your bananas are about to go bad, bake them, make, make banana breads. There's so many good things that you can do is just uh, trying to be a little creative and we can save a lot of food. Thank you so much, I agree. Um, one tip that I have is um, don't be so quick to toss out food. I think people will see just something that might look wrong um, and they just throw it out immediately. Um, so I would just say don't, 
don't be so quick. Um, so the last question here is what seems that, 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 that uh, I think is important uh, and it's that is changing now is the is the uh, valid buy date. Uh, consumers yeah. when they see oh it's close to the to the shelf life they throw away. That is a suggestion. It doesn't mean that the product is going to go bad on Thursday. So I think if we're all like, okay, smell the milk. Uh, if it looks good, it's probably good. So as you mentioned, don't, don't be so fast at throwing things away. Yeah, I, I agree. I've seen it happen far too often. So the last question that we have, um, it seems like there are a lot of questions around, around the restaurant industry. Chantel from Michigan, and there was a couple of other people. Um, it's kind of twofold. What can be done about all the food chains that have daily food waste? And then there was another question that said, when I visit the USA, I'm constantly horrif horrified by the size of portions in restaurants. What is being done to persuade them to serve up smaller portions to avoid so much food being wasted? I've even asked some of the restaurants to reduce my portion size offering to pay full price, but they're not willing to do that. Um, what can be done in the, I don't, maybe it's behavioral change, maybe it's just, you know, at the, the restaurant industry. Who would like to take this question? I can add to that because it's something that I experienced before where you go and you order a, a plate and it's like a can feed three people. So uh, if you are with a spouse, a friend, you can always uh, uh, share. So don't be afraid to ask them to split that plate in two. That is an easy little hack that anyone uh, can do and will definitely help uh, reduce food waste, or uh, just ask to take home. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So th those are two simple ways that you can do your part. Uh, of course, that we would like to see the restaurants like a, a, a changing and offering like maybe smaller meals at a cheaper price. But I think like a, we all uh, can can be smart about what we order. Yeah, my 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 little personal hack was when I was living in New York City. Uh, every time I wouldn't finish the meal or have a takeout, as, as Paul says, um, give it to a homeless person um, and, and share the meal. And, and it really creates a better kind of ecosystem, in my opinion. I would say, um, if I can jump in, yeah. yeah. So there are, our, our innate um, reasoning when we see something that needs to be filled with food or liquid or trash is to fill it. And so there's mixed evidence right now of whether or not like the soda tax has have worked for example, on the larger portion sizes, um, because that has been proven so controversial, something that me and some colleagues in, in, from the behavioral science community have come up with is having your own portion sizes measured out, knowing what that is for you. And so when you go to a restaurant, until we can get some like governance and infrastructure change, what you can do as an individual is have those portion sizes already mapped out for you. And then when you go to the restaurant, taking whatever you get, liquid or food and putting it into this, uh, what you have already pre-planned as the max amount you're going to be eating and the rest you take to go. Because we will eat and we will fill containers and we will eat more than we need to because that's just how we're wired. And so if we can be proactive about it and pre-plan it in advance, there is incredible, and it's a simple tweak and there's incredible health benefits and waste, preventative waste benefits to that as well. And do you have um, to add to that, and also like what's what could be done by the food chains, like the food chains, like Panera and others that 
constantly have food waste that consumers see um, them just throwing stuff out. What is there anything being done or is there policies around that that would you know maybe change in the future into not having this much food being wasted by food chains? Well, I'm not an expert on this, but I would say that I think the food chains are looking at ways to address, you know, what they've got left over. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes government regulations make it harder because, you know, as Sam talked about earlier, you sometimes don't have, uh, the health regulations don't allow you to give away food that's already been cooked or isn't going through certain channels. So there are some challenges there, but I do think a lot of restaurants also have um, relationships with food kitchens where they're actually using cooked foods and they're, and they're passing on some of their excess to their, but I think we have to look at the restaurant issue that the restaurant industry is having significantly changed during COVID. I mean, people are taking out so much more food and hopefully, you know, they're sharing it or eating it or buying what is an appropriate amount of food for them or their family. And, um, and I think uh, as we go back to restaurants, it's, it's gonna be easier for them to probably give you the takeout uh, container because, you know, they've developed a whole takeout culture during this COVID time period. Yes, I agree. Thank you so much. Um, well, Thank I really you. appreciate this discussion today. Um, does anyone have anything else to add before we close out? Well, thank you again. Um, you know, EarthDay.org, we're celebrating um, Earth Day on the 22nd, as Earth Day always is on April 22nd, and we're pivoting again this year due to the pandemic to an online platform. So we're really um, excited about that. So if our viewers can look for um, what's happening um, Earth Day this year. Thank you, Anne, Kawe, Justin, Shetha. Thank you so much, Sam, who, um, who had to leave. Thank you so much for being part of this um, really valuable discussion. And for our viewers who have been asking, um, there's been a lot of teachers actually that have been asking when, if this was going to be recorded, this is recorded and we will get this um, video out to share to your students. Um, it seemed like they really appreciated the discussion on, on, school, on the school cafeteria. Um, so thank you again, everyone so much um, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.